0: The cut. The cut. The cut. The cut. The cut. That's not fair. That's not nice. Not, that's not An old Vanity Fair interview with comedian Hassan Minaj went viral last week, where they asked him essentially what he thought of his own looks, because the comedian Dax Shepard had rated Hassan Minaj a nine. Called you a nine out of ten. And Hassan Minaj was then asked in return to rate Dax Shepard. I would give Dax, I have to give a number, 6.57. Harsh. Okay, Dax is part of a thing. And Hasan Minaj sort of -of matter-of-factly said, like, society rarely leaves a middle ground for men of color. In movies, they either have to be drop-dead gorgeous or completely anonymous. In short, Hasan doesn't get to be average like Dax Shepard who's a white guy. In show business, there's this whole movement of, like, approachable white dudes. You know how there's a whole class of white dudes of just, like, schlubby dudes who went to high school with me? There's no, like, that. With, like, men of color, it's like, you gotta have, like, the V taper in your abs if you're gonna be Asian. This reminds me of my favorite satirical headline from Reductress. Is he cute? Or is he just tall and white? And this is not about, like, come on guys, get a six pack. This is just generally about how low the bar is for white men. We have such low expectations. How many
1: how many kind of shitty white dudes are you hanging out with or in your circle just because they're not the worst <laughs> white dudes? Like, oh, you know, yeah, he makes inappropriate jokes all the time, but you know.
0: Ijoma Aluo is a speaker, journalist, and author of the bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. Ijoma has a lot of conversations with white people about race. And some of the reactions she's received, especially from white men, have been harrowing. Ijoma has been doxed and threatened and had SWAT teams sent to her house. The safety of her family has been repeatedly jeopardized by white men. And Ijoma addresses all of this in her new book. My book is Mediocre
1: The a Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And it is somewhat self-explanatory in the title, but it, we are looking at 150 to 200 years of history around the creation of violent white male identity in America. You know, I know this sounds like I'm building this evil image of white men, but I'm talking about whiteness as a structure, right? White maleness is a structure. And so it's important to recognize the reality, the harsh reality that it is, and what it has cost all of us, regardless of race or gender or ethnicity.
0: There's this assumption that men are always the beneficiaries of current power structures, from politics to business. And that is true. But Ijoma's work looks at something that is also true, that men maybe who aren't wealthy or single fathers, are also exploited under current systems.
1: The powers that be in these systems are not afraid of people of color understanding how exploitation works. They're afraid of white men understanding how their own exploitation works, how they've sold themselves out, how they've really been screwed over by this system as well. And that's really the fear. What they don't want is the average white man to be like, Wait a minute, so you're telling me this isn't a fair system?
0: And this is all just a massive setup for disappointment. Because, you know, if you are a white guy who then can't get the job you want or the partner you want or these things you thought would happen, even though you were told you're doing enough and you played by all the rules, it just feels like something is broken. It just sucks all around. If we're telling white men you
1: deserve all of these things just because you're white. And that's what ties them to an exploitative capitalist system, right? Is the idea that it's just come and just hang in there, keep doing your part, helping to exploit other people, you know, keep exploiting yourself. You can't tie that to actual returns because those aren't coming.
0: So to reshape structural inequalities that are hurting everyone, white men need to be in the fight.
1: The problem is, is that there's so much programming the whole your whole life that you're supposed to be centered. It's supposed to be about you.
0: It's almost as if equality has to get marketed as something beneficial. Like, hey, you should support abortion because it will help your sex life, or you should support immigration because it will be good for the economy. Because we talk about it, you know, as
1: a beneficial thing. Oh, you know, you would feel that ba- you would feel so much better. You could be a hero. You could save someone's life, um, or you you would free yourself. You know, this would eventually it it'll, it'll give you a ben- you know a financial benefit it's not enough that i will live you have to also feel a benefit
0: and there are movements that might not directly benefit white men at all that are simply the right thing to do but it's difficult for white men and white people generally not to just grab the wheel and center ourselves this is what robin d'angelo the author of white fragility calls Slipping into dominance.
1: Yeah, and that's the hard part, this
0: slip into dominance. For example, Jomo writes about how white men were attracted to Bernie Sanders for a lot of really great reasons, but then this loud handful ended up making it a movement about themselves. Hence the cliché of the Bernie bro.
1: The Bernie bros and what, what Bernie appealed to, but also it's what Biden appeals to absolutely, I am your friendly white man and I will, you know, take you through. And, and that it becomes an, a real threat to progress, this idea that this wouldn't all be in the image of white men. Even white men who really, I think, honestly believe, you know, or think they believe in equity and change and helping other people where it doesn't center them, where they can't see any immediate benefit for themselves or at least the award they're supposed to get for their generosity.
0: I saw this among men who were so, so invested in their candidate that they ended up maligning some of their own allies. Even, like, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you know, they're like, oh, well, she's wrong in this way. So, like, might as well be Trump. Yeah, no, it's it's weird. It's, right, you know? which, is, which is so sad. It gets to this idea of, like, who gets to make mistakes mm-hmm. and who gets to apologize? Mm-hmm. White
1: men get to be all nuance. We can look at like all of the times in which Bernie's kind of been wrong, and people will bring up, "Hey, this was this was harmful," and someone will say, "Oh, you have to understand this, right?" There'll be a hundred excuses, but then Kamala's a cop forever,
0: and none of this is new. Throughout her research, Ajoma saw white men slip into dominance over and over again.
1: What we did first, me and my two research assistants, was just pulled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of book excerpts, articles, right, just tons. And I started going through it. So each night I would go through, you know, maybe a hundred
0: articles. But my favorite example from her book was one Joma found by accident. I was like, oh, that's douchey. Who's this dude? She had stumbled across an American movement from the 1910s called Socialist Feminism. Socialist feminism. A movement spearheaded by two white men.
1: I want to be clear. They were introduced to socialist feminism by women, who I am pretty sure had a different definition of socialist feminism than what it came to be known (laughs) under their leadership.
0: And this cause, socialist feminism, wasn't quite about what you'd think it might be about.
1: Because I'm always like, yeah, of course, right? You know, the labor of women is constantly stolen to uphold these systems.
0: No. No, 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 no. The two white guy leaders of this movement, Max Eastman and Floyd Dell, took up the cause of socialist feminism because they believed that they were being oppressed.
1: The angle they took was that men were being exploited because men were having to go work. And therefore women were exploiting them for their paycheck.
0: They're like, we have to feed these people. We're oppressed. Yes.
1: (laughs) For these silly women who weren't allowed to grow their minds, so you weren't even having fun conversations, and you were stuck with a kid, and, and they really treat like this whole, like, ugh, you know. If
0: women annoy you
1: and you don't want to be accountable
0: to them, join up the cause. You should be a feminist, because then you don't owe women anything. So you can sleep around without having to take her to dinner, or worry if she gets pregnant. Sexual liberation. And liberation of course, just means that a young, attractive women will want
1: to sleep with you. And they will be so much smarter because they'll be reading all of a sudden, but the books you like.
0: Max Eastman and Floyd Dell were the heads of prominent socialist papers, and so they got to determine what the literature on socialist feminism would be.
1: Floyd Dell wrote this, like, uh, I think it was Women as World Builders. But he just wrote his own synopsis of what he thought about his favorite feminists. And it wasn't, they're not even quoted in it.
0: And no, they did not publish anything about, say, getting women the right to vote.
1: They had these ideas, like where it came to, you know, women's growth and women's opportunity, that was all frivolous. But where it could benefit men, then it was serious. And so that's why you should be a feminist, because you'd be getting laid, you won't have to pay any bills, you won't have to take care of your children, and that's that's what every man wants. So yay, female liberation, that's what that is. And it was so kind of gross.
0: Max Eastman and Floyd Dell were exactly the kind of guy who would try to hit on you by mansplaining universal basic income.
1: Oh, you know, it. They're so, you know, and I was like, I know these guys, you know, we all know these guys. And, and it was so funny to see, like, what what could almost be a TV caricature, right, of, like, the white male feminist who shows up. is like, hey, ladies, you know, I've read bell hooks, you know, and you're
0: just like, oh,
1: you're so awful.
0: Except history books are like, ah, yes, these great titans of feminism.
1: And I would, you know, find these articles in, like, these male feminist networks that were like, Be like them. No, please don't. Please don't be like them.
0: And just to really, really drive home how completely mediocre this feminist socialism movement was, Max Eastman founded the Men's League of Women's Suffrage, which sounds kind of cool and progressive until you learn that that group literally did nothing.
1: In their charter, like, what are their promises to men who joined this feminist Group
0: was that they wouldn't have to do anything. Eastman promised that no member would be called upon to do anything. The main function of this league would be to exist.
1: Like, literally, where we're just like, oh, you, you existed.
0: Woohoo! As Ijoma Luo writes, in the battle for women's suffrage, in which women literally fought and died, men become heroes by simply existing.
1: There was no time where, like, white dudes weren't pulling this shit. And, you know, and you just, you can picture them, you could. Trot, you know, plop them in today for a, you know, in, a, in the middle of a he-for-she meeting and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they would fit right in.
0: And as Ajoma writes, there's another reason it's hard for white men to really take tangible action and not make it all about themselves. Because, yes, there's a fear that liberation movements might not benefit them. But even more damaging is the fear that liberation movements might actively harm them.
1: I think that it's very easy for white men to feel targeted, because they are the biggest threat. (laughs) They're a real threat, Um, but our identity isn't built on vanquishing them, and we're not trying to say who I am as a Black woman is in contrast to white men. We're not trying to say the new system means we're going to have power over white men or that white men won't exist anymore. What we're trying to do is extricate ourselves from the oppression of white men and the systems that white men have built.
0: Believing that new systems are possible requires a belief that there is actually an infinite amount of freedom and safety in the world, that there are enough resources for everyone. We can raise people up without bringing people down. I wish that white people were less pessimistic about their ability to grow. Like white people who get that something's
1: wrong need to be having conversations in whiteness about what could we be? What could we offer up? What identity could we have that isn't tied to oppression and exploitation and violence? Like what could we create? Because black people have had to do this, right? The story that was given to us was one of oppression and violence. The story, you know, the identity given to us was that we were to be oppressed, that we were out of control, that we needed to be controlled, And we had to build an identity. We had to say, no, that is not who we are. This is our culture. This is what we strive to.
0: Whiteness has to do the same in a way that's not under threat. Ijoma writes about a particularly awful genre of threat that she sometimes gets, usually from white men, who will email her like, I guess you just want me to go away and die. It's the
1: weirdest thing to be like, to be a white man and be like, oh, if the status quo changes, I'll just die. I'll just, I'll just cease to exist. I can't handle
0: it. And you can. It's just that there's this terrifying sort of all or nothing approach that any change, any disappointment, any adversity makes white men just want to like destroy everything. And a perfect example of this is socialist feminism and our socialist feminist crusaders, Max Eastman and Floyd Dell. Both of them ended up
1: really straying from their quote-unquote mission they were so tied to.
0: The leaders of socialist feminism ended up being neither socialist nor feminist. Floyd Dell became an advocate for traditional gender roles.
1: Once he realized that women who were smarter than him were not women he wanted to sleep with, he said, my definition of feminism is now that women are free to, to
0: be in the home. And Max Eastman went to Russia to live out his ideals. Yeah, he went to
1: Russia during the revolution, which I imagine was traumatic and terrifying and came back and was like, oh, yep, it's all it's all trash. Forget everything I ever said. Capitalism is where it's at and became
0: one of the prominent voices on the right. And Eastman ended up ratting out his communist friends to the American government at a time when it was really dangerous to be communist. Each of these men made a complete and total about-face.
1: Because he had felt betrayed by this movement. He had felt like he wasn't served by this movement. Therefore, the movement and everyone in it had to be taken down. This doesn't please me anymore, so I'm gonna burn it to the ground. It's really like such a white dude thing to do. (laughs) It just really is.
0: And this is a reoccurring phenomenon where white people and white men get so upset and so embarrassed that they will give up in the face of discomfort. Like this past summer when there was a spike in wokeness and the New York Times bestseller list was full of books about race and history, including a Joma Oluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race. But then you look at the election results and how Trump was still so close to winning and how white people, like me, are getting tired and frustrated and scared to continue learning and talking about racism. Allyship fatigue took hold in a matter of months. That's
1: the sort of thing where it's like, okay, you know, actually, we need to really look at what growth looks like and accountability looks like in our society and say that it's something we hold everyone to. This whole idea that cancel culture is killing people. Cancel culture doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. What I see oftentimes that gets mistaken for council culture is that in a lack of, you know, an approach, a systemic approach to growth and change, what we have is the repeated frustrations and anger of people who are being harmed coming over and over and over again and saying, this has to be resolved. This has to be resolved. This has to be resolved. And it can look like a cancellation because there's nothing in its place. Who's permanently
0: canceled? Like who? Uh, Louis C.K. Some people. He's not,
1: he's, yeah, I mean, Louis C.K. is still selling out clubs.
0: That's oh, true. He's making money. Right. Yeah. He just shifted audiences. Exactly. That's right.
1: Like, no one's permanently canceled. And so then they just move to another space and say, well, that's that's done. I'm here now.
0: Oh my God, you're so right. It's that another motive that, like, burn the house down and, like, reincarnate myself entirely rather Absolutely. than just, like, trying to stay in the community that I built.
1: Yeah, instead of looking at what would it mean to, to heal and grow and, and hold myself accountable to this community. Nope, it doesn't exist. It hates me. I've been canceled. Now I live in this space. And it's,
0: you know, now I'm on Joe Rogan. Thinking that people are rooting against you, that they hate you and they want to punish you, is a terrible psychic burden to live with. If you are accustomed to getting by with a degree of mediocrity and you're not used to being picked apart and dissected and put in place, it all must come as a terrible shock. And trust me, I know what it feels like to be picked apart and dissected and put in place. This, for better or for worse, is a lot of people's experience. So welcome to the club, white men. After the break, Ejoma Aluo reads from her book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And now, Ejoma Aluo, reading from Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America.
1: I was at an idyllic women's writing retreat. I spent my days in a charming cabin surrounded by trees, kept warm by a little wood stove. As I looked out the window to the giant evergreens surrounding my cabin, I was supposed to feel the spark of inspiration. But I wasn't feeling inspired yet. This setting was quite a change for someone like me. A single mom of two boys, used to riding over the din of crashes and bangs and shouts in her own attention deficit disorder. I had adapted to being creative, even with a teenage boy regularly interrupting to tell me that he needed more snacks, and yes, was still incapable of finding them himself. But this writing retreat was designed to get women away from the cries of, Mom! or Honey! that so often compete for our brain space. We were supposed to be honoring our creativity by giving it the time and space it deserved. No children, no men, no internet no television. So we worked each day in solitude, and then every evening at around 6pm, all five of us writers would leave our individual cabins and gather for dinner in the main farmhouse. Over a lovingly prepared meal, made with vegetables freshly pulled from the farmhouse garden, we would discuss our writing projects, asking each other questions and offering support and encouragement. We talked about the work we were doing, the books we were writing, the plays we wanted to write. We floated ideas, asked for advice about agents and editors. We laughed and drank wine. But more than anything, we talked about men. Not our partners or friends or brothers. We talked about shitty dudes. And even though we came from diverse racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds, we all had plenty of dudes to talk about. We talked about the white men in publishing, who are constantly devaluing our work. We talked about the male writers who would grab your ass at book fairs or offer to give you feedback on your work and then try to sleep with you. We talked about how much time we had spent writing about shitty white dudes. Because if we weren't writing about the president, we were writing about how men without uteruses should not control our reproductive choices, or about how rapists should actually go to jail for rape, even if they were gifted athletes. Every evening, we would come together and talk about how we were trying to write and live in a world run by men who seemed pretty determined to stop us from having a voice, from experiencing success, from having our own free and independent lives. And I know this isn't a problem that's particular to the writing industry. I've participated in similar conversations when I worked in advertising and when I worked in tech. These are conversations, I'm sure, that women find themselves having in just about any job they have, in every school they attend, and in every community where they live. There is an abundance of bad guys to be found just about everywhere, and we can't seem to stop talking about them. Works according to design. This is a comment that I and many of my fellow racial justice commentators have made when truly horrible things happen just as they were intended to. A police officer shot an unarmed black man, and a grand jury decided that the officer didn't even need to face trial? Works according to design. A kid of color selling weed will be sentenced to years in prison, while a wealthy white man receives house arrest for a second DUI? Works according to design. Although the phrase may seem alarmingly cold-hearted, It is our way of reminding ourselves that the greatest evil we face is not ignorant individuals, but our oppressive systems. It is a reminder that the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland are not isolated cases. It is a reminder to refuse to let our shock and outrage distract us into thinking that these incidents do not all stem from the same root source, which must be dismantled. That source is white male supremacy. White men lead our ineffective government with almost guaranteed reelection. They lead our corrupt and violent criminal justice system with little risk of facing justice themselves. And they run our increasingly polarized and misinforming media, winning awards for perpetrating the idea that things run best when white men are in charge. This is not a stroke of white male luck. This is how our white male supremacist systems have been designed to work. And when I say white supremacy, I'm not just talking about Klan members and neo-Nazis. Blatant racial terrorists, while deadly and horrifying, have never been the primary threat to people of color in America. It is more insidious than that. I am talking about the ways our schoolrooms, politics, popular culture, boardrooms, and more, all prioritize the white race over other races. Ours is a society where white culture is normalized and universalized, while cultures of color are demonized, exotified, or erased. The average black household in the United States has one-thirteenth of the net financial worth of the average white household. The average Hispanic household has one-eleventh. One-third of black men in America are expected to be imprisoned in the course of their lives. As stark as these numbers seem, We people of color, especially women of color, live with these realities every day. Our entire society is built to ensure that white men hoard power. And it's important to remember that the women and people of color most violently harmed by these systems are those who are also queer, transgender, or disabled. The male supremacy in white male supremacy has been in place in white culture since before white people thought of themselves as white. For centuries, women were not allowed to own property, to attend university, to vote. Whatever degree of freedom women and girls had in their public and private lives was determined by men. Women still spend a large portion of their lives battling men for their basic dignity and safety. They face the persistence of the gender wage gap, the fact that one in five women is a victim of sexual assault, and the ongoing debate about whether male abusers should keep their jobs and even their status. These injustices are not passed down by God. They are not produced by any entity greater than ourselves. These oppressive systems were built by people, with our votes, our money, our hiring decisions, and they can be unmade by people. So at this beautiful dinner table in a farmhouse in the woods, as we continued talking about these white men and their unchecked anger, fear, and irresponsibility, this phrase kept popping into my head. Works according to design. I thought about the white men who talked over me in meetings. I thought about the white male lead in a movie who sits in his cubicle and laments his lot, bemoaning that he was supposed to be so much more. I thought about the white men wearing swastikas in Charlottesville, angry about their own failures and shouting about the people they blamed for them. I thought of every think piece published since the 2016 election trying to explain the new angry white man. He was disillusioned. He was afraid. He was dissatisfied with his job and his elected representatives. He felt forgotten and left behind. Our modern, pluralist world's focus on diversity had harmed white men in some real way, leading to this age of white male anger. At least, that's what the pundits said. And here we were, a group of accomplished women talking about these white men as if they were a problem that had recently fallen upon us from the sky, instead of the predictable product of centuries of cultural, political, and economic conditioning. And suddenly, my anxiety of the last few days faded because I knew that I was going to write this book.
0: hmm hmm The Cut is made by B.A. Parker, Allison Behringer, and me. Mixed and scored by Brandon McFarland. Our executive producers are Nishat Kirwa and Stella Bugby. Special thanks to Karinza Kadinas, Sangeeta Sankirtz, Jen Gann, and the editorial team at New York Magazine. You can read and support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman.